Psalm 123, verses 1 to 4. A psalm of ascents. Now, we all know what that means. It's a song about going up, right? A psalm is a song. Ascent means to go up. Long time ago, in Jerusalem, there was a temple on the top of a hill. The hill was called Zion, Mount Zion, and people had to plod up that hill. And at the highest point, you would find a temple. And every year, people would go there as families. And as they walked up, you can see some of them walking up the steps into the temple. They knew when they got there, they were going to make sacrifices. It's not something we do today, thank goodness. We don't take pigeons and bulls and goats and so forth and sacrifice them. But they did then. And they did that because they were looking forward to a time when one sacrifice was going to be made for all the people. So animals were offered, their lives were given for the sins of the people who offered them. But it was all looking forward to one time when one man, Jesus, was going to come and die on a cross. And all those sacrifices before looked forward to that. And we can all look back to that moment and know that's where our sins are forgiven. So as they walked up, they sang. Okay. There you go. Here's a few people singing. Where do you think they are? Anybody? Give me a, give me a, give me a, give me a break. Come on, anybody. Where are they? Norwich. That's right. I thought I'd be independent here. So here they are in Norwich City. They're all singing. All right. If you've ever been to a football match, you'll know that you sat there. Nobody gets up and goes, after me, you ready? It just starts. Everybody just starts singing at the same time, the same words. It's magic. All right. What's going on here? Where, who, who are those people? They're Welsh people. And Welsh people can really sing. And they can really sing their national anthem. The most amazing national anthem when you hear it sung. It's beautiful. Really, really profound. Okay, they're singing. And there's some children, probably in church, probably all singing. Those three groups of people, they sing to identify who they are. We belong to this football team. We belong to this country. We belong to God. People sing because it identifies who you are. That's what this psalm is. It's identifying God's people as they go up to the temple, as they're thinking about how they'll be made, made right with God. They're singing a psalm. Okay, now, this psalm is split into two parts. It's got a problem that they're singing about because they want God's help, and it's got a solution Unfortunately, the wrong way round. Verses 3 and 4 is the problem, and verses 1 and 2 is the solution. So we're going to reverse it. We're going to switch it round a bit and start with verses 3 and 4. What is the problem? Well, here it is. It's in red. It's contempt. A word that's mentioned twice. It's scorn. These people are walking up to the temple, and they're thinking about how others regard them. Now, you you and I have been sat through a number of excellent sermons on David. These are the people who've been through those times with David. There's been wars, there's been invasions, there's been all sorts of horrible stuff going on. The people of God have been laughed at and scorned by all their surrounding neighbors because of what they believe. They believe in one God. They believe in Ten Commandments. What's all this about? Now, if you're a Christian, you can probably identify with that. That people find 
Christianity, the Christian faith, a bit of an affront to them. What I mean by that is this. There's only two kinds of people. Those who have faith, trust in God. Those who don't, believe or trust in God. There's only two kinds of people in the world. And unfortunately, when the person with faith lives their life and doesn't lie and doesn't cheat and doesn't steal and doesn't swear and is loyal in marriage and all sorts of other stuff, the person who's on the other side, who might be a really nice person, looks at them and goes, hmm, not really with that. You know, if I can get away with it, if I get the chance, hmm, not going to go with that. So they're often shown up. And so their reaction is contempt and scorn. They'll say, ah, come on. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen it through my life as a teacher. Other teachers, knowing what I believed, I can well remember my first PE lesson with the head of PE, who called me up and said, Vicar, I want you to get these boys in a line and get this lesson underway. That was his nickname for me, Vicar. It's a sort of contempt, it's a sort of scorn. And it's something that people who have faith are on the receiving end of. But you know there's always been a sneaking respect behind all of that, even from that head of PE towards me, because I believed in faith and I believed in family. So there was always a little bit of a sneaking respect that, yeah, you know, it might be a bit odd, he might be a member of the God Squad, but he ain't that bad. The difficulty is now that in the modern society, we're beginning to see, we've seen it in the last five years, probably ten years, we're beginning to see things are changing a little bit. The contempt and the scorn that comes to the Christian comes from a different angle now because we're beginning to see the rise of something that wants to divide societies into groups of people, young versus old, black versus white, male versus female. It's called identity politics. And what happens is people want everyone split up and looking at each other and rivaling each other so they can control everybody. And the problem with that is in the modern society, what we're beginning to see is whereas the traditional contempt and scorn came your way, but in the end everybody respected faith and family, we're beginning to see that identity politics says, well, actually faith is an enemy. To splitting people up because it says we judge people on who they are not what they are not on immutable characteristics but on their character we're beginning to see a rise in this idea so that family is the enemy because family gives continuity people are accepted by who, for who they are uh, unconditionally within a family but if people can break up that family then they can control society. And that's a difficulty that we're beginning to see emerge out there. And it's an interesting battleground to observe. So contempt and scorn comes the way of the Christian. If you're a young Christian in school, do you want to stand up and say, well, actually, I believe God made the world? Do you want to stand up and say, well, actually, I, I believe in God? Or is that difficult for you? Because scorn and contempt will come your way. It was a problem in the early church. Here's a letter that was written to the church in Galatia because they had that problem of trying to split people up into different groups. 
And so the apostle wrote, he said, listen, there's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ. There's only two kinds of people. Those who love God and those who don't. So who's doing this? Who's sending this our way? Who's pushing this on us? Well, the, the psalmist tells us, have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us. For we've had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of scorn. Really had it right up to here. And who's it coming from? From those who are at ease. The contempt of the proud. Who's at ease? Well, just think about it. People who've got it all. People who've got health. People who've got wealth. People who've got relationships. People who've got status. People who've got position. People who've got opportunity. So that could mean the media. It could mean big institutions. It could mean academia. It could mean all sorts of groups of people. It could mean just the individual who you might work with every day who's got a nice income, nice health, lots of friends, doesn't need anything else because they're at the center of everything. And because they're at ease, they're quite proud. They're at the center. And they look at others, Christians, and they go, you know, what are you, what are you believing all that nonsense for? And you're a bit odd, aren't you? And pick on your weaknesses. Because that's what happens when scorn comes your way. People find something that really needles you. It's those who are at ease and those who are proud. But people won't always be at ease. People won't always be proud. And it's worth thinking about this. You'll never have heard of this guy, I'll bet you. Pronounce that. Adoniram Judson. Great name. Adoniram Judson, 1819, very, very bright guy. Went to university in Massachusetts, read philosophy and theology, wanted to be a minister in the church. Went to university, was going to all the lectures, writing his essays, doing his thing. And then he met a bloke called Jacob Eames. Jacob was even brighter than him. Jacob was a natural philosopher. In other words, he believed that nature was the source of all inspiration. Nature was where it's at. Never mind God and your theology. It's nature you want to look at. It's science you want to look at. It's rationality you want to look at. So Adoniram, listen to this guy. And this guy was proud. This guy was at ease. And he thought, oh, hey, it's hard to argue with this. So gradually Adoniram left his theology and went to study English instead. And philosophy and then he became a teacher of English and philosophy and he traveled around New England teaching uh, and lecturing. One night he was in a hotel on the road and uh, he couldn't get to sleep because there was a terrible noise coming from next door and the noise got louder and louder and it was wailing and it was moaning and it was crying out. A man next door was in a really bad way, struggling, crying out for help. And the next morning, when Adoniram went down for breakfast, he said to the hotel owner, he said, what happened to that man? Where is he? And he was told, I'm afraid he passed away in the night. Oh, right. Who was he? Oh, his name was Jacob Eames. When Jacob Eames came to the point in his life where there was no ease, there was no pride, it was just him 
in the end, he didn't go well. He had no hope. He was afraid of what lay next because he'd had no hope, no security eternally. Adoniram thought about this and it actually brought him to a point where he realized there's more things that are true in his study of the Bible than not. And he decided that he was going to put his trust in Christ. He went on to be a missionary in a tough place in Indonesia, Papua New Guinea. He's still remembered out there to this day. What a tough place to go and preach. You really got to believe if you're going to do that. And that's what he did. Because he saw a man who was no longer at ease and no longer proud. Here's a photograph. Sorry, it's not a photograph, but it's the nearest thing we could find. It's a stone-cut carving of King Nebuchadnezzar from the British Museum, 600 BC. There's a little artist's impression of him. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled the biggest empire. His city, you can still find traces of it today, that he built, Babylon. Is this not great Babylon that I have built? He's quoted as saying in Daniel. It had wonders of the world. One of the ancient wonders of the world was there. The Ishtar gates, three miles of walls, all sorts of stuff going on. Every brick had his name on it. So if you go to an archaeological dealer and he wants to sell you a brick with Nebuchadnezzar's name on it, it's not worth a lot because there's millions of them. But he put his name on every brick because, you know, he wanted everyone to know. He built this. He was great Nebuchadnezzar. He could just look at you and have you killed. His power was endless. He was so full of himself that he had a statue built and said to everyone, come and worship me. But three guys wouldn't worship him because there's only two kinds of people. Those who trust God and those who don't. And they trusted God. So they said, no, I'm not going to. Well, okay. In his pride, he said, well, you'll suffer the consequences. And he had them thrown into a fiery furnace. There they are with a fourth person. It was so hot that as they got near the furnace, the big strong men who were going to throw them in, they died. It was so hot. But the four men, the three who would not bow, and the other man, walked around in the furnace and talked with each other. The fourth person was the Son of God, like the Son of God. It was Christ in the fiery furnace with the three guys who wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar. And they came out. They came out of the fiery furnace. And when they came out, whoops-a-daisy, gone the wrong way. When they came out, there wasn't a smell of fire on them. There wasn't a singe on them. Their eyebrows were all intact because God had protected them in that fiery furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar saw it. But he wasn't changed. Because he was still in charge. He was proud. He was at ease. Everything was under control. But then something happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a, a copper plate, oops, it is, you've done it again. Copper plates by William Blake, um, which shows what happened to him. William Blake was an artist in the 18th century. And uh, he starts to suffer from something, a rare disease called lycanthropy. Lycanthropy is where you think you are an animal. He thought he was an animal, no longer the king of the world. So he went out into a field. His hair grew like feathers, his nails like talons. Summer and winter, rain and snow. 
he was out there for years. And there was nothing he could do to help himself. And then finally, he came to. From the top, he went to the very bottom. And he came to. And this is what he wrote, Nebuchadnezzar, after that experience. But at the end of those days in the field, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity was restored to me. Then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. People won't always be proud and at ease. They will be brought low, like he was. But they won't always come to God like he did, like Adoniram did, like many of us here have done. They won't always do that. So it's worth thinking about that, that you won't always be at ease and come to terms with that. Now, I've seen this recently in my life, in our family life. We've seen this. We've seen a lovely believer go from full health and strength to a point where there was nothing she could do to help herself. And old age took its toll, and it was hard. But she trusted in the middle of that. And we will all come to that point. So you need to think it through, guys, as you think about the future and your pride. If you're not a, if you're not a believer here today, you need to think about that. So, here's the solution. There's a the problem. What does a Christian do? What, what, there's a solution. And here is the solution. To you I lift up my eyes. You who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look to the master, as the eyes of the maidservant look to the mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. He uses a picture of the master and the servant, the mistress and the maidservant. Now, I thought to myself, how can I make this real for you? Well, there you go. Who are they? Anyone know who they are? Who's the guy on the right? What's his name? Ah, if you doubt Abby, you've all forgotten, haven't you? Come on. It's Carson. It's Carson. And who's on the other side? Lord Grantham. There you go, the Earl of Grantham. Carson looks at the Earl of Grantham and he just worships him. He can do no wrong. You know? He gives his whole life to him. He serves him. I'm sure there are loads of other pictures. I thought of Bertie, Wooster and Jeeves, but mm, that didn't quite work. There's loads of pictures of masters and servants and so forth and the relationship. And the psalmist uses this picture. He says, if you're really struggling so that there's scorns coming your way and you just want to give it all up, remember you serve a master who you trust, who you trust implicitly. Whatever he says, you will do because you know it's going to be for your good. Okay? I lift up my eyes. I lift up my eyes. Now, that doesn't mean God's up there. He is. But he's everywhere. He's in every molecule of everything in places we don't even know exist because he's everywhere. But he uses the picture of looking up because we often do. That that is where God is because he is in heaven. All right? She says, I lift up my eyes. Oh, right, now then. Does anybody recognize that painting? Who would that be by? Anyone? I'll give you another one. Who's that one? Anyone? Lowry. Oh, shouting out from the back. Shouting out. I don't allow shouting out. Right. See me later. So, yes, this is L.S. Lowry. I don't know if you've seen his pictures, the Matchstick Men. Very famous, very, very uh, valuable now. 
There's one interesting thing about all of Lowry's pictures. Most of the people in his pictures, L.S. Lowry's pictures, are looking down. They're looking down. Right? And that's what we tend to do when we have a problem, when we're under pressure. We tend to look around us. We look down. We look at other people. We look at our bank balance. We look at our career. We look at uh, solutions that the world offers us. But the psalmist says, no, we should look up, not down. Like Ellis Lowry's people are all looking down. Look up, look to God, because that's where you find your solutions. Now, here's the question. How do you do that? Is it some sort of magical mystery tour? Just to get back to the Beatles analogy. Is that what we're going to do? Are we going to just kind of wait for some amazing revelation coming our way? And the answer is no. There is a way of dealing with the contempt, dealing with the scorn, dealing with the issues. And I'm going to give you some practical suggestions now. There you go. In prayer. That's something you do. It's not some magical feeling. It's something you do. Do you pray on your own? Do you pray with your family? Do you pray with your friends? Do you pray with the church? Come and pray with the church. Because that's where it's at. That's where you can help to deal with these issues. In Bible study, reading the scriptures, trying to understand them. In fellowship, when I say fellowship, it's wonderful to meet and chat about life and family and sport and all sorts of stuff. But I mean really talk about what the Lord means to you, what he's done for you. Maybe how you're struggling, I don't know. But in fellowship, in listening to preaching, that's why it's so important that the preaching is good. Because it's the highest act of worship to listen to preaching. It's the highest act of worship to listen to preaching. It's the thing that helps us, injects us with the Holy Spirit to help us through these issues. Christian reading is another one. Now I've got some books I brought. Three books. There you go. These have helped me in my life at various stages. Let's start with the first one. This one here is one I read recently. It's called The Hideous Strength by Melvin Tinkler, who's a Church of England minister who died recently. He was in his 60s, quite young. But it's a bestseller. And uh, if you want to know how to deal with identity politics from a Christian perspective, this is the book to read. It's, the, it's a winner. The middle book is called Questions You Might Have Asked About Being a Christian. It answers questions like, open the page. Can we be sure God exists? Can the Bible be trusted? Is there a purpose in man's existence? What's gone wrong in the world? Who is Christ? Was the cross really necessary? How long does it take to become a Christian? Does it matter what I believe? Why do Christians have to be different? What happens when we die? How can I be sure? I must have given away tens of these in my lifetime and they've helped many people. That's a, an excellent book and I've had this book since I was a student, Search the Scriptures. It's the whole Bible splits up so you can just read five verses, ten verses, and think about it. Take five minutes, two minutes, three minutes, ten minutes. It's up to you. Search the Scriptures. Excellent book. I've got those three books here. I'm going to give two of them away if anybody wants them. Search the Scriptures. Mm, I'm a bit dodgy about giving that away. But uh, I might loan it to someone. But if anybody wants one of those, you, c you can have them. So it's Christian reading. This is, these are practical things. And self-discipline. Self-discipline. Nobody talks about that. 
Why is it that the contempt and the scorn really get to you? I've had enough of it, says the psalmist. Could it be that you're putting yourself in the wrong places, with the wrong people, having the wrong conversations, looking at the wrong things? Could it be that your discipline is letting you down, that you're not coming in prayer, that you're not reading the scriptures, that you're not thinking about these things, but you're exposing yourself to harmful stuff more than to helpful stuff? Well, that takes a moment of self-discipline, of just getting up and leaving. Okay? So it's not like some unicorn. God's help is not like some magical mystery thing. It's practical. It's real. It's what you do. And these are things that I've seen Christians do over my years as a believer that have inspired me because it's helped them to overcome the scorn and overcome the contempt that might come their way. So, our eyes, these things here, real things, look to the Lord our God like a servant looks to his master till he shows us mercy. Amen.